have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black Bible under the chair in front of you or around you. If you're using that Bible, we are going to be on page 863. While you're turning there, I want to take a moment to publicly thank Ricky Lightcap for preaching last Sunday. Ricky did an excellent job. If you missed that message, you can find it on our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast app. Um, that message was encouraging and challenging. No kidding, brother. You put a pebble in my shoe that's been driving me nuts all week. Thank you so much for that. I know that you guys will be blessed. And if you don't know what I'm talking about there, go listen to the message. Um, but um, you will be blessed by that. So check it out. Be encouraged. Uh, but since we're sending our kids back to school this week, and since Ricky closed out our, um, our summer series Last week as well, we are returning to our series in the Gospel of Luke that we're simply calling the Gospel of Luke, Good News for Everyone. We're calling that sermon, this sermon series by that name because that's what this book is all about. The Gospel of Luke was written so that we would have certainty about who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And it was written to help us know that the Gospel, the good news, is for everyone. Whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it's for everyone. God sent his son, Jesus, who came and lived a perfect life, who died a sinner's death on the cross for our sins, who was buried in a borrowed tomb, but on the third day rose in victory over sin and death. God sent him so that if we will repent of our sin, if we will place our faith in him, we will have eternal life reconciled to God. That is the good news of the gospel. And this book is all about helping us to see that that gospel is for everyone. That's what we've been seeing as we've worked through the first six chapters of this book. Now, when we paused for our summer series in the Old Testament, we ended at the end of chapter 6, which was the end of Jesus' sermon on the plain. We spent about three weeks looking at that sermon, and, and as we did, what we saw was Jesus teaching this large crowd that included both Jews and Gentiles this radical message of what it means to have a life that has been transformed by Christ. Jesus was teaching us the necessity of keeping an eternal perspective. We look at this life. We look at the things that Christ has called us into with our eyes not fixed on this world, but fixed on eternity. And Jesus was also teaching us to see that what we need is not behavioral transformation, but heart change. We need a transformed heart. Jesus didn't leave the splendor and majesty of heaven to come to earth to give us good habits. He came to change our hearts and to change our lives. That's what we saw as we were looking at Jesus' teaching there in chapter 6. But as we come into chapter 7 this morning, there's this shift that's going to happen. We're going to go for, for a while from teachings of Jesus to teachings about Jesus, all to help us see and understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. That's what this whole chapter is about. This whole chapter is working to teach us who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And as we look at the first two accounts in this chapter today, Luke is going to show us two aspects of what Jesus is like. He's going to show us that Jesus is amazed by faith and he's moved by compassion. That's our main idea for the day uh, because that's what these two short pericopes are all about. And that word pericopes, that's just a kind of theological word for, for story, okay? I don't like the word story because that makes you think, well, maybe this is 
fiction and this, this, this isn't fiction, this happened, this is real. So these, these two pericopes that we're looking at today in the beginning of chapter 7 are showing us who Jesus is, what Jesus is like. They're showing us that Jesus is amazed by faith and he's moved by compassion. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. Luke chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to go to verse 17. The Bible says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that the grass withers, that the flower falls, and that the word of the Lord remains forever, and this is the word of the Lord. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what this account is teaching us today. As we spend some time looking at these 17 verses, I, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand what you have for us in this. Help us to see the kind of faith we ought to live out. Help us to see that you see us that you love us, that you're moved by compassion for us. And because of that, we can find life and forgiveness and hope in you. Father, speak to us today. Equip us with what we need right now for the life you've called us to live as we head out of here in a few minutes to live the ministries you've given us. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for your word. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. We use the word amazing in our vocabulary a lot these days, right? Like to the point where, where I feel like the word amazing is a little bit of a cliche. Man, that was amazing. Well, was it? Maybe. It's a word we tend to overuse. But I'd like you to think about it for a minute. What does it take 
to actually amaze you? What leaves you awestruck? What causes you to marvel? I don't get to do it much these days, but I used to love going camping. We'd go out into the middle of nowhere, far from the city, far from the lights, and look up at the night sky and see nothing but stars everywhere. That caused me to marvel. That was amazing. Or going to the Grand Canyon and looking out over the vast tapestry of colorful sandstone and looking at this massive canyon that's been carved out by centuries of water flowing down the Colorado River. That caused me to marvel. That amazed me. Maybe going to Yosemite National Park and you see those massive granite cliffs and the valley that's been filled in with giant sequoia groves and crystal clear rivers and beautiful waterfalls. That amazes me. That causes me to marvel. What amazes you? What really amazes you? And as you think about that, I'd like you to think about another thing. What do you think it takes to amaze Jesus? What causes Jesus to marvel? What causes Jesus to be awestruck? As we're looking at this text today, Luke is actually going to answer that question for us. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is amazed by bold and humble faith. Look at this first pericope, beginning there in verse 1. The Bible says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, that's talking about that sermon on the plain, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his service servant. As this account begins, Jesus has just finished his sermon on the plain, and as he returned to his home pace in Capernaum, there in the city or in, in Capernaum, in that region of Galilee, a Roman centurion heard about Jesus and sends word to him to come and heal his slave. Now, these opening sentences here in verses 2 and 3 in particular, they, they present us with a bit of an unusual picture. This centurion is a Roman citizen and a Gentile. He was under the command of Herod Antipas, who was openly antagonistic to any movement, any sect, any teacher that upset the status quo. It was Antipas who, who's going to come and arrest John the Baptist and eventually have him executed. It was Antipas, we're going to see in chapter 13, who seeks to do the same thing with Jesus. So a centurion who's loyal to Antipas, sending word and requesting help from Jesus, that should grab our attention. And while we're not sure how or what he heard about Jesus, it seems he's heard enough to believe that Jesus can help. But being a Gentile who knows the political and social climate of the region, he doesn't presume to go directly to Jesus. He doesn't even like send his own servants to Jesus. Instead, he goes to the people he's used to working with. He goes to the local leaders, the local bureaucrats, if you will, the, the Jewish elders. It's the local council, the, the Sanhedrin. And they're the ones who go to Jesus on his behalf. Keep reading there in verses 4 and 5. Luke tells us, And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. 
These Jewish elders have come to Jesus, and and as they're coming to Jesus, a few things become readily apparent. First, this centurion right here, he's pretty, pretty influential. I mean, surely some of that comes from his power, right? Like he's almost certainly the the senior military official there in Capernaum. And and like most centurions, he's wealthy, right? We know that because we know that centurions in that day earned the modern equivalent of between about $750,000 and $1.4 million a year. I'm not making that up. They, they made a ridiculous amount of money, and this centurion has, has used some of that wealth, at least, to build a synagogue there in Capernaum. Now, if you were to travel over to Capernaum today, you can actually see the, the black basalt foundation of that synagogue. It's still there today. It's got this 4th century white limestone synagogue built on top of that foundation, but it's all there. But more than the fact that he's funding the synagogue's construction, the Elders tell Jesus that he loves our nation. As we see that, this centurion's willingness to fund and build a synagogue combined with his love for the people and their culture, it means that most likely this centurion is what the New Testament refers to as a God-fearer. In the New Testament, God-fearers are are a term that is applied to Gentiles who participated in a lot of the life of the Jewish community, but they never fully converted to Judaism. And based on everything that we're seeing here, this centurion, it seems, is is probably a God-fearer. He seems in many ways to have a lot of strong connections with the Jewish community in Capernaum to the point that even though he's a Gentile, even though he's an officer in the Roman army which is occupying their nation, these Jewish elders are coming to Jesus and they're asking Jesus to help him. But as we look at what these Jewish leaders are saying here, here's what we need to recognize. They're intentionally trying to impress Jesus. Did you see that? Like They want Jesus to do this for him. He's influential. He's wealthy. He's generous. He's kind to the Jews. This Gentile Roman soldier has earned Jesus' help. The Jewish leader's exact words there in verse 4, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He deserves Jesus' attention. He deserves Jesus' help. He's entitled to it. That's how they approach Jesus. And as we see that, I can't help but wonder, isn't that how a lot of us want to come to Jesus too? Like, Like we want to come to Jesus and show him all we've done. We think we need to come to him with this list of reasons why he should accept us, why he should save us, why he should welcome us into his family. We think we need to come to Jesus with a list of accomplishments to impress and amaze him and earn his love and his forgiveness and his grace. Often, we do the same thing personally that these Jewish elders were doing for the centurion. We try to amaze Jesus with everything we have to offer. But that's not what amazes Jesus. Jesus isn't amazed by all the things you can do right. He he isn't amazed by your success at work. He's he's not amazed by by your ability, by sheer force of will to overcome that bad habit, that addiction. Jesus isn't amazed by what we have to offer him. And yet this is what we always try to do. It's such an easy trap to fall into. Because honestly, 
that's how our world works. Our world, even us, we, we're impressed by these things. But Jesus isn't. And as we keep going here in the text, we're going to see that. So keep reading, starting at verse 6. The Bible says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. As we read that, can you see it there? Jesus is amazed by bold and humble faith. That's what we're seeing right here in the text. It's not the centurion's wealth. It's not his power. It's not his influence. It's not his generosity or his kindness. It's not any of that. What impresses Jesus, what amazes Jesus is faith. Verse 9 says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. It's the centurion's faith that amazed Jesus. And so as we see that, let's just take a minute and kind of zoom in and look at this. As Jesus is coming up to the house, the second half of verse 6 says that the centurion sent his friends out to Jesus and said to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, the contrast here between what those Jewish elders have said about him and what he says about himself, that should kind of grab our attention. The elders told Jesus in verse 4, he is worthy to have you do this for him. But the centurion says of himself, I'm not worthy even to have you in my house. This is humble faith. He's been presented to Jesus as someone who deserves the help he's requested. But here, in complete humility, he says, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. But even though he knows he's not worthy, he still asks. This is humble, but it's also bold. Look at what the centurion says one more time. They're starting in the second half of verse 6. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Do you, do you see that right there? Like if you write in your Bibles, underline, highlight the end of that verse seven. That's humility and boldness mixed together in that message that he is sending to Jesus. The centurion knows that even though he's not worthy to have Jesus enter his house, even though he's not worthy to be in Jesus's presence personally, he has faith that knows that Jesus doesn't have to be in the room to grant his request. The centurion has this remarkable faith that Jesus has authority over his slave's sickness in the same kind of way that, G that the centurion has authority over the soldiers who serve under him. That's what we're seeing as we keep reading in verse 8. He says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion's faith in Jesus, his faith in Jesus' ability 
and, and authority over his slave's sickness is so both bold and humble that he's able to come to Jesus and make this request. And as he does, verse 9 tells us, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marveled at the centurion's bold and humble faith. That's what amazes Jesus. Jesus tells the crowd, I haven't seen this kind of humble faith. I haven't seen this kind of bold faith, even in Israel. And that statement isn't a knock on Israel. It's not calling out Israel for a lack of faith. What it is, is it's a statement about the magnitude, the the enormity of the centurion's faith. It was a faith so strong that it caused Jesus to marvel. And here's what we need to know about that word marveled right here. Only twice in our Bible is the word marveled used as something that Jesus is doing. It's used right here in Capernaum. When Jesus marveled and was amazed at the faith of this Gentile centurion, and it's used of Jesus marveling at the lack of faith in Nazareth, his hometown, when he was there. What causes Jesus to marvel? What amazes Jesus? Bold and humble faith. That's what amazes Jesus. Jesus wasn't amazed by the centurion's influence or his power. He wasn't amazed by his wealth or generosity. Jesus was amazed by his bold and humble faith. And as we see that, we can see that the centurion was giving us an example that we can follow. He was showing us that we can simply come to Jesus with faith. And you can't miss the fact that this faith that the centurion had, it was a simple faith. But he certainly didn't know everything there was to know about Jesus. He didn't have a fully formed theology of the coming Messiah. All he knew is that the only solution for his problem was Jesus. And so he turned to Jesus for help. And it's the same thing for you and me. Like you can come to Jesus with a simple faith. You don't have to have every theological question answered in order to come. All you need to know is that you have a sin problem. Jesus has a salvation solution, and he's willing to help you. That's all you need to know. And then when you come to him, you don't need to come to him and try and impress Jesus. You don't need to come to him and show him all that you've done. You don't need to come to him with this list of reasons why he should accept you and save you and welcome you into his family. You don't need to come to him with a list of accomplishments that impress and amaze and earn his love and his grace and his forgiveness. We just come to him with humility. We just come to him with faith. We come to Jesus and we say, listen, I know I don't deserve this, but I know that you can give it, so would you? Would you forgive my sin? Would you give me life? We can come to Jesus with this bold and humble faith. And when we do, he offers us the gift. He offers us life. You see, we often forget about that. We forget that it's a gift. We think it's something we need to earn, but we can't earn it. It can only be received as a gift You can't be good enough on your own. You can't earn it on your own. So stop trying. 
Man, how many of us, we, we're constantly trying to impress God. We're try, constantly trying to show Him that we deserve salvation. But what if we were just to surrender and say, I know I don't deserve this, but would you give it to me anyway? That's the kind of faith that impresses Jesus. The kind of faith that's both humble and bold. Verse 10 tells us that when the centurion's friends came back to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus granted the centurion's request. He took that servant who was on the edge of death and he raised him back to life and he never even entered entered the house. That's what Jesus does when you come to him with bold and humble faith. And so this first account comes to an end and then Luke takes us to the next account. And on the surface, the, the two might feel a little disconnected. But again, I want you to remember the whole goal of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is working to teach us who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. In the first account, the first pericope, Luke has shown us that Jesus is amazed by bold and humble faith. But he's also showed us that Jesus is willing to engage and heal Gentiles. He's shown us that Jesus has power over sickness. All of that in that first account. But then as we move into the second, he's going to show us even more of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is moved by compassion. Take a look, beginning at verse 11. Luke tells us soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, the the town of Nain is a small settlement about 25 miles south of Capernaum. It was a full day's walk away. And a day or two after Jesus had raised up the centurion's slave, he decides to go down to Nain. And he goes down there with a whole crowd of people, his disciples and people that are following him. And as he's coming towards the town, he sees there at the gate this funeral procession coming out. It would have had mourners in front and then a buyer with the dead man's body on it, and then the mother behind and, and mourners behind her. And they're, they're taking him out of the town and they're taking him out to bury him. And as Jesus is coming and he sees this at the town gate, what he is encountering is this incredibly bleak picture. It's a mother who's been widowed heading out to bury her only son. This woman is now alone in the world. She has no one to protect her. She has no one to provide for her. All of her hopes, all of her security has died with her son. But look what happens starting at verse 13. The Bible says, and when the Lord saw her, and we have to stop right there. Like don't pass over what Luke is showing us right there. As Jesus is traveling to Nain, as he drew near, he saw the woman. Like, I mean, think about this for a moment. Like when you see somebody out in public and and they're visibly, like massively, hysterically upset, like like just ugly crying out in public, what's your reaction? Like, it's a safe place. We can be honest. What's your reaction? You want to look away, right? 
Like you don't want to enter into that pain. You don't want to experience what they're suffering. You want to just give them their privacy is what we'll say. But that's not what Jesus did. As Jesus is entering the town, he saw this woman right where she was at. But he didn't just see her. He went right up to her, where she was. He met her there in the midst of her grief, and he did something unbelievable. Keep reading. There in verse 13, the Bible says, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the buyer, and the bears stood still. Again, we've got to stop mid-verse here because there's a lot of context that we could miss. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is starting to gain some popularity. Like he's got a crowd that's following him. He's becoming this respected rabbi in the community. But look what he's done. He walks right up to the widow in the middle of the funeral procession, in the middle of her grief, in the middle of her mess, right where she's at. And what does he say to her? He says, Stop weeping. Now, who does that? I mean, like, like who, well, obviously, who does that? Like, who walks into a funeral and says, hey, y'all, just stop crying? This is crazy. This is outrageous. What Jesus is doing here, it's shocking. And it gets worse because after he talks to the widow, he walks over to the funeral bar and he reaches out and he touches the buyer. And the problem with that is now he's ceremonially unclean. That's why all the bearers stopped, by the way. They stopped because they're shocked. Jesus has just made himself unclean by touching this buyer that's carrying a corpse. But their shock isn't over yet. He's going to take it even further. Keep reading. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. As he saw this poor, helpless, hopeless widow, Jesus is moved by compassion. He saw her. He went to her. He raised her son to life, and then he gave him back to his mother. Jesus met her in her grief in order to bring her into joy. Don't miss that. The account ends by telling us that the people are filled with awe and fear. They glorify God, and word about Jesus starts spreading throughout the whole region. Now, now here's the thing. Only in Luke's gospel are we told about this resurrection. It's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in John. It's only here. But Luke is telling us about it because he wants us to know who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Because Jesus doesn't change. Jesus is still moved by compassion. Like the woman in name, he sees you too. Whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever you're going through right now, whatever it is that's leaving you feeling helpless and hopeless and beyond repair, Jesus sees you. I feel like maybe we need to hear that every now and then. 
Like you have not run so far from his sight that he doesn't see you. You haven't been abandoned by God in the mess that you're, you're dealing with right now. He sees you right where you are. But what I also want you to hear is that just like that widow, he'll meet you right where you are. Jesus went to that widow in the middle of her mess and he met her right there. And he does the same thing with us. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make yourself pretty. Jesus will meet you in the mess. He comes to you right where you are and he offers you resurrection life. All you have to do is accept it. Repent of your sin, place your faith in him, and take hold of the life he has to offer. These two accounts here in Luke, they're painting a picture of who Jesus is. And when we see them together, we start to get this incredible picture. Like you've got the centurion who came to Jesus in humility. He he knew he wasn't worthy. He knew he had nothing to offer, but he came. And he came with bold faith in Jesus. And as Jesus saw that bold faith, it amazed him. He marveled and he healed the centurion's slave. And when Jesus came to the town of Nain, he saw that weeping widow. And he went to her. He didn't avoid her. He wasn't repulsed by her, but he he met her right where she was. He had compassion on her and he brought her out of her mourning and brought her into joy. These two people, you've got this wealthy, powerful, influential Gentile soldier and a poor, helpless, hopeless Jewish widow. They both had an encounter with Jesus and their lives were changed forever because that's what happens when you have an encounter with Jesus. Your life changes You won't be the same anymore because Jesus is God with us. You saw that, right? They actually said that there in verse 16. Verse 16 says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh who has come to reconcile us to himself. He's amazed by faith, and he's moved by compassion, and he's come to give us life. That's what Luke is teaching us right here. What we're seeing in these two accounts is that Jesus is amazed by faith, and he's moved by compassion. He sees you where you are, and in compassion, he's offering you life. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to have it all figured out. You can come to Jesus as you are in faith. And as you place your faith in him, he takes away the guilt of your sin and he gives you life. New life is available in Jesus. So the only question is, will we take hold of it? Will we live that out? That's the offer that's on the table right here today. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for your word here today. I thank you for the encouragement we find in here. 
And, and Father, I ask that you would help us to take this and make it ours. Help us to know deep down in our core that we can come to you with faith. We don't have to have all our questions answered, but we can know that you see us where we're at. You don't want us to clean ourselves up just to come to you. We can come to you just as we are if we come in faith. And so I ask that you would help us to do that today. Help us to be a people who live with our faith solidly in your ability to fix what we cannot fix on our own. Do that today for us, Lord. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I don't do this every Sunday, but if, if you've heard your story interwoven into this story today, and, and you're finding yourself in that position, I, I need what Jesus has to offer. Maybe you've never repented of your sin. You've never placed your faith in him and, and you're feeling that tug on your heart today. I, I wanna give you the opportunity right now. I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you stand out, but, but if you would, if that's you today, just slip up your hand really quick. I don't see anybody, that's okay. Maybe you've been living trying to do it all on your own. You've, you've repented of your sin. You've asked Christ to be the Lord of your life and, and live for him, but you're still trying to impress Jesus. You're still trying to prove what a good little Christian you are, and, and you really haven't let go of everything and handed it all over to him. If, if that's you today, let me encourage you. You don't have to impress Jesus. He sees you. He loves you. Confess and repent of that self-reliance and let go. Let him be Lord. Live for him with his strength. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for the work you're doing in us. Thank you for your word. Help us to live knowing that you're good, sharing that goodness with everyone we meet. Work in us and through us. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen.